So hey, this is Zane Horowitz and everybody here at the Oregon Poison Center for the April 23rd Journal Club and today's topic is about methotrexate, something we thankfully don't see very much of, but we're going to talk a little bit about both its toxicity um, as far as IV or orally and then the thing I think we all fear the most is the intrathecal accidental overdose for which there's some new agents available in the last few years, and we'll talk more in depth about those. I'm going to start out with um, a very nicely done um, case files from the New York Poison Center from uh, Silas Smith and Lou Nelson about methotrexate toxicity, and it kind of presents a case, and I think it lays a lot of background so we can uh, understand a little bit more as we go through the article. So the case is pretty simple, ones we get every once in a while, a 10-year-old, uh, boy weighed 37 and a half kilos. They even calculate his body surface area for you, and that'll become important when we talk about dosing of uh, medications. Um, he was going to get a four-hour infusion of high-dose methotrexate because uh, he had osteosarcoma, and see that's one of the uh, diseases where they give the highest of doses of methotrexate for. And uh, he had... Um, a central venous catheter in, and he basically, after this, he started developing blurry vision, uh, mucositis, stomatitis, facial blistering, and uh, over 48 hours, and in 48 hours, he had a level which was 171, and these are all going to be in micromoles per liter as we talk about these. So what does that mean? Well, that's a very, very high level, so how do you approach that? Let's do a little background first. Methotrexate. Um, as uh, we may know, is a uh, folate analog and an anti-metabolite. It is um, used in a lot of malignancies, including osteosarcoma and leukemias. It's used in some rheumatic disorders. It's used for termination of pregnancy, both ectopic and um, elective. Um, and it's uh, it really sp sprung from the early days in the 40s where a drug called amipterin, which was an anti-folate metabolist, metabolite was used, and it had a lot of side effects and sort of faded into the past, and it wasn't until 1971 that methotrexate itself was approved, and originally approved for dermatomyositis and things like pemphigus and pityriasis rubricularis, which is different to erosia. And the indications for its use expanded over time to include um, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and then more recently for uh, ectopic pregnancy, and then a variety of off-label uses have, uh, have been used, including graft-versus-host disease. A drug can be given orally, can be given IV, it can be given intramuscularly, and as we mentioned, it can be given intrathecally through an Amire reservoir. These high-dose chemotherapies are usually require something called leucoborin rescue, and in fact, leucoborin is one of the antidotes we'll be talking about today. Um, the high doses are often 8 to 12 grams per meter squared, and this drug is dosed on the body surface area calculation of meter square, which is different than our per kilo dosing we're used to using. Um, and um, yeah, that's for high doses for chemo chemotherapy for cancers. Lower doses are used on a once-a-week basis. For instance, psoriasis patients often get 7.5 to 30 milligrams orally once a week. However, as we've all seen, um, errors occur and people misunderstand how to take it. Instead of taking it once a week, they take it every day. And on the seventh day, when they realize that they're out of medication, they finally recognize the error and call us or call their physician and they want recommendations of what to do. For ectopic pregnancy, it's a single IM injection of 50 milligrams per meter squared. Um, and so different doses for different uh, uses. So this drug goes intracellularly, and there's a, a polyglutamyl synthesase that links up glutamate groups to methyltrexate. Um, it's, the drug is metabolized. It's got an active metabolite at the 7-hydroxide position, so 7-hydroxide methyltrexate is created by aldehyde oxidase. It's also in the GI tract gut uh, bacteria has carboxypeptidases, and it converts MTX to another metabolite that will become important when we talk about the other antidote, which is 4-amino-4-deoxy-10-methoxypentaric acid, or abbreviated DAMPA, D-A-M-P-A. 
So pharmacokinetically, uh, methyltrexate is a weak acid. It's ionized at physiologic pHs. It's about 50% protein bound. So it's not a real super good agent for dialysis being about 50% protein bound. You can manipulate the pH and increase its uh, renal excretion by alkalinizing the urine. That's one of the modalities we use. Orally, it's absorbed reasonably well, but there's a plateau after you get above about 25 to 50 milligrams orally. Um, so you have pretty near complete intestinal uptake at doses less than 30, and as you go above that, the amount of, of uh, that's absorbed goes down. So the good news is with an oral overdose, you actually don't get as much as you think you did. Um, it's renally excreted. It happens by active tubular reabsorption and secretion. There's up to a three-fold variation in serum concentrations that are given. So people have different ways of handling the drug that are quite variable in their serum concentrations. And we tend to get serum concentrations with some of these high-dose regimens at 24, 48 hours and, and thereafter. The mean median methotrexate elimination phase half-life is about four hours for the high doses, such as in osteosarcoma patients. Those receiving low doses, like the weekly injections, the median elimination half-life is about 1.7 hours. And there's a variety of drugs that interact with it. We'll talk about a few of them, but NSAIDs and aspirin and barbiturates all tend to displace the drug from its protein-binding sites. Um, the other thing is we have this interthecal methyltrexate, and it can go from there, which is used to treat uh, CNS lymphoma, into the systemic circulation. So there is actually an active transport that um, occurs from the CSF to the bloodstream. Um, so methyltrexate uh, inhibits folate. Folate must be active to be utilized. Folate is actually vitamin B9, although rarely called that. It's reduced by dihydrofolate reductase to dihydrofolate FH2, and then again by dihydrofolate reductase to yield the active tetrahydrofolates. You need to get to the tetrahydrofolate stage to be active. And these are the enzymes that are inhibited by methotrexate. Um, we, you can give folic acid or folate, or you can give leucovorin, um, which is more specific, it's least susceptible to oxidative degradation, and is a much more stable form of the reduced folate as one of its antagonists. So methotrexate uh, antagonizes folate uh, along several pathways, uh, enters the cell through a folate transporter, um, inhibits the dihydrofolate reductase, and therefore you get neither FH2 nor FH4 generated despite how much folate you have. Um, as a consequence, this affects dividing cells, therefore its use in malignancy, therefore its use in termination of pregnancy, and therefore its use in a lot of these skin and rheumatologic disorders. Um, we mentioned it's excreted renally. It is very susceptible to nephrotoxicity, especially at high doses. Mortality can be as high as 4.5% in those with nephrotoxicity, so it's sort of this slow onset of renal disease and accumulates, and the higher it accumulates, the more adverse effects it has to growing and dividing cells. The two metabolites, DAMPA and 7-hydroxymethoxylate, are 10 times and then 4 times less soluble than methotrexate, and therefore more likely to precipitate in the urotubules as uh, crystals. And of course, like everything else, there's genetic polymorphisms and folate-depending enzymes and those of us handling it differently based on our genetics. So what do we see when someone is uh, essentially toxicity from this? There is a variety of organ systems involved. Those that have rapid cell turnover are affected the most. So the biggest one is hematologic bone marrow suppression, anemia, pancytopenia, thrombocytopenia. There's a variety of mucus and skin lesions, stomatitis, mucositis, which can be quite severe, GI effects, um, and hepatotoxicity and renal toxicity. There's some rare pulmonary findings, about 10% of the patients, they can get an interstitial pneumonitis and bronchiolitis obliterans and a fibrosis. And the biggest risk factor for pulmonary toxicity is the use of other chemotherapy agents that cause pulmonary toxicity as well. So you have to wonder if it's just additive or just unfortunate luck of having multiple chemotherapy agents on board. Um, 
If it's given intrathecally, you can get a chemical arachnoiditis in as much as 40% of the patients. It can present with a whole variety of neurologic symptoms from headache, nausea, vomiting, fever, and then back pain because the arachnoiditis can sink down to the lower level in the spinal cord. It can be followed days to weeks later by a paraplegia, cerebellar dysfunction, cranial nerve palsies and seizures, and of course, death. There's a separate glucoencephalopathy that can occur with ataxia, seizure, coma, or death kind of progression. It's quite severe, and patients receiving uh, up to four grams per meter squared IV and whole brain radiation are at the highest risk for this leukoencephalopathy. Um, so what do you do about, we mentioned the level in this child was 170. So in patients receiving chemotherapy, 24-hour um, levels should be about 10. That's toxic above that. At 48 hours, it should be about 1. And we have a, a, a sort of a graph or an algorithm algorithm we can follow as far as treating and dosing based on that. So this child had his creatinine bump from normal of 0.5 up to 2.7 at 42 hours. Um, his transaminases went up to 800 and 1500. His bilirubin went up to 3.5. So he sort of had multi-organ toxicity. So how do we treat this? Well, we're going to talk about some of those things in the journal club. I'm not going to go over uh, the different things, although we will talk a little bit about um, Two agents in particular, leucovorin and glucocarpartase, and we will find out what those two agents do. So, as that as a background, we will start out with our first paper here on uh, there are some drugs we mentioned that cause drug-drug interactions, and they're common drugs that we use, and I thought I'd highlight a couple of those to begin with, the first one being Bactrim, or trimethoprim sulfur, which are very similar. So, Bruce, what tell us about that. Sure. So this was a very illustrative case of one of the main drugs that can cause a drug-drug interaction, as Dr. Horowitz said, with uh, methotrexate and that's trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. So the case began with a 68-year-old female with a history of Crohn's disease for about 40 years, who for the last 13 years had been taking 25-milligram weekly injections of methotrexate for the last 13 years. She presented with abdominal pain and increased frequency of bowel movements and was treated with oral prednisone for a presumed Crohn's flare. In addition to that, she was also prescribed Bactrim three times weekly to, uh, for prophylaxis against uh, pneumocystis gyrovegi pneumonia. Subsequently, she was discharged, but in the weeks between that admission and her following admission three weeks later, she progressively, on an outpatient basis, had more abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting, and she eventually developed exquisitely sensitive uh, oral, oral sores in her mouth and developed a, a real stomatitis. So she came back to the hospital three weeks later and for dehydration and painful stomatitis. So they drew a CBC, which showed pancytopenia. They took a look at these oral sores that she had, she was given oral nystatin for presumed oral candidiasis at first. They swabbed her and found that it actually wasn't candidiasis. It actually turned out to be herpes simplex virus causing that. So they eventually switched her over to uh, valisiglavir. And she was put on morphine for pain control for that. On the third day of admission, they finally stopped the methotrexate and, uh, and the Bactrim, which were being used concomitantly, and started her on uh, leucovorin therapy. Uh, within five days of that, her uh, her pancytopenia resolved and back to pre uh, to baseline, and her dehydration at that point had resolved. So her she had had some acute renal insufficiency at that point, and that normalized. In addition to that, her diarrhea also stopped because that had been getting worse. The only other hematologic abnormality she had had prior to her admissions was a normal chromic normocytic anemia consistent with chronic inflammation uh, anemia. And the authors of this paper thought, given the timeline, this was most likely attributable to starting the methotrexate during that first admission. So why is this a bad combination of drugs to use in terms of this drug-drug interaction? The problem, as Dr. Horowitz highlighted, is that the the first thing is they have very similar mechanisms of action. Bactrim also has, 
So Bactrim is a combination of two antibiotics, both of which interfere with different steps in the folate synthesis uh, used by bacteria. And specifically, trimethoprim inhibits the exact same enzyme that methotrexate does, which is dihydrofolate reductase. So both of these can have additive myelosuppressive effects. In addition to that, though, there are other problems with using Bactrim while using methotrexate, the first of which is uh, methotrexate, as we mentioned before, is somewhat protein-bound, about 50% of it, and methotrexate is capable of displacing methotrexate from albumin, therefore increasing the free concentration of it. Furthermore, uh, both of these medications do have the potential for nephrotoxicity, so it's actually been sh shown that uh, certain levels of methotrexate can go up as mu much as 30% in the excretion of methotrexate can decrease by half if you're using these two drugs simultaneously. Uh, one of the nephrotoxic metabolites from methotrexate is called 7-hydroxymethotrexate. Only a small portion of methotrexate is metabolized through the liver, but that's how you form this particular metabolite. So it's, it's a little bit of a vicious cycle there. And other than that, it's in most cases where you would need to use Bactrim and someone on methotrexate, it's thought that you should really try to use a different agent, for example, in an uncomplicated cystitis. Even though the Bactrim would be short-term, it's not really clear if that's safe. And if you can, it's preferable to just use another agent like ciprofloxacin or nitrofurantoin, for example. Uh, and in cases where you do have methotrexate toxicity like this, as illustrated by the case, you can usually stop the agents and start leucoboridin therapy to try and reverse what's going on, but that is going to decrease the effectiveness of the methotrexate and, and the uh, bathroom that you're using. Yeah, so just a good example and reminder that uh, trimethoprim, the methoprim part of it is uh, very similar to methotrexate, inhibits the same enzyme, and this is probably one of the number one drug-drug interactions we see with this, and we give out lots of bathroom. Sometimes without thinking about it a whole lot, but certainly in these patients and on these unique drugs, it's definitely one that you need to consider an alternative agent like we talked about. So the other agent that comes up is um, also very commonly given for literally just about everything, including ones that are available at the counter, are all the proton pump inhibitors, which we think of as completely safe and without any side effects whatsoever. But as we learn more, we, we say nothing is perfectly safe. So Casey? That is an excellent segue. So um, interestingly, PPIs are commonly prescribed for the side effect of nausea with methotrexate, but um, looking at this um, new review um, from the oncologist, this was published in uh, 2012, they looked at the AERS database from the FDA um, reporting suspected drug-drug interactions and they were looking at PPIs leading to methotrexate toxicity, and they found several cases of it um, with the meprazole, ezomeprazole, pantoprazole. And um, there's several other PPIs they were looking at that they also didn't find any reactions with, although I've actually haven't seen many of these on people's drug list. Lanzoprazole, uh, rabiprazole, or dexlanzoprazole didn't have any database um, hits for this. Um, several of the cases... Um, were coming from patients that were getting high doses of methotrexate as part of their cancer therapy. Um, and you can kind of just go through some of these. For example, there was a 47-year-old man. He was getting treated for Burkitt's lymphoma. And he had de uh, decreased methotrexate claret um, when he was put it on ezomeprazole for some side effects. And as soon as the ezomeprazole was taken away, his methotrexate clearance normalized. There was also a 15-year-old boy treating for large cell lymphoma. He had decreased elimination of methotrexate while on omeprazole, and that um, his methotrexate elimination had been normal during the first two cycles. And on the third cycle, um, he was started on omeprazole, and the elimination lasted one week instead of two days, which it had been before, and that was confirmed with blood levels. He had no manifestations of toxicity in that case. Um, there are also some... Um, cases that have been published in the literature for this. In uh, 1993, there was a patient treated for osteosarcoma that um, when he was on a high-dose high dose methotrexate, 
that omeprazole was started and his methotrexate levels remained elevated for several days. They treated him appropriately for that. And after the omeprazole was discontinued, his methotrexate rapidly declined. Um, there's also been a case of a patient that um, had the same type happen. He was being treated for osteosarcoma. He had decreased elimination um, that was measured in the methotrexate plasma concentrations. Then when they switched him to ranitidine, the methotrexate elimination was normal. And that, um, that when they then consented the patient and tried it again, they restarted him back on the omeprazole and that they then noticed that there was a decreased clearance at that time, which seems kind of sketchy that they, they did that. <laughs> um, so there are several of these cases and there's proposed um, mechanisms for why this could happen. And one of the ways that they thought about it is that there's this breast cancer resistant protein, which is in the kidney as well, that it's thought to be responsible somewhat for methotrexate secretion, and that this does get blocked by some PPIs. Although they found that the concentration needing to stop the methotrexate excretion has to be a little bit higher than, or significantly higher than most therapeutic levels are in humans. There's also debate that maybe the uh, PPIs, which inhibit the sodium or the potassium hydrogen pump, also affect the kidney, uh, and that that might affect the methotrexate excretion out of the kidney, and particularly the metabolite hydroxymethotrexate, which can also cause toxic effects. However, there hasn't been um, significant alkalinization of the urine in these patients. And so the thought is that this um, HK pump might not actually really be deactivated as much as they think it is. So it's just something to think about that both um, methotrexate and its active metabolite, hydroxymethotrexate, can be inhibited by PPIs. And that's been seen in some patients, although I have no idea what the prevalence of this is because this is just case reports to the FDA. In most cases of toxicity or suspected toxicity, um, have don't get reported to the FDA overall. Right. Yeah. I mean, the FDA MedWatch system is kind of like poison centers. It's a voluntary system, and only if people take the initiative to fill out the form and send it in. Um, we don't know how many patients get started on one of the PPIs, and the creatinine goes up a little bit. And they break up, realize what it is, and they stop the drug, and it never reaches anybody's attention. But it does, you know, show that um, simple drugs that we think are pretty safe can have some adverse consequences and certainly the higher the methotrexate stay level stay for long periods of time the higher the risk of all the other complications I don't think some of those patients actually had some significant complications yeah some of them had um, toxicity um, mucositis there was renal injuries um, there were no long-term adverse events that were reported but the known toxic effects and some of them were just elevated levels but there were some toxicity reports so, I mean, currently, up until a few years ago, when we had uh, methotrexate overdoses or toxicity from chronic use and drug-drug interactions or, or increased renal function, you know, our two things we can do is do what the cancer patients do. We can leucovorin rescue, and there's dosing and nomogram for how much leucovorin you have to give them based on the level, or you, you guess high and you get a level and you slowly taper it down. And you alkalinize the urine, because we mentioned both of those metabolites can precipitate in the urine. And, alkalinizing helps to flush it in. About a year or so ago, after some research, a new drug, glucarpidase, came around. And it's, it's an expensive drug, but we'll talk about some of the data that was used to release it on the market and then debate a little bit. It's different uses, both IV and intravenous, uh, intrathecally. So to start out with is a, a pretty big study on its use in patients with um, kidney injury on methotrexate therapy, so Jillian. Right, so this is efficacy of glucarpidase in patients with acute kidney injury after high-dose methotrexate therapy in pharmacotherapy 2014. That just begins with a quick review. We briefly mentioned already that since about the 50s, methotrexate has been used to treat uh, both pediatric and adult cancers. <clears throat> and this is a dihydrofolate reductase, uh, which is obviously involved in purine biosynthesis. And that High-dose methotrexate, usually defined as more than a gram per meter squared, is um, defined here as administered IV, um, typically accompanied, as Dr. Horowitz mentioned, by leucovorin rescue um, as an integral part of treatment. 
and that methotrexate-induced acute kidney injury is an oncologic emergency uh, that occurs in a number of these patients despite best efforts uh, to try to prevent it. And that typical therapies involve lupivorin, IV hydration, and then urinary alkalinization, although those are not always uniformly effective in uh, presenting, uh, preventing a kidney injury. So typically what happens is that if you're administering high-dose methotrexate, you're going to do vigorous IV hydration, and then the idea is that you alkalinize urine to help prevent that precipitation of the methotrexate crystals um, in the renal tubules. And uh, but what uh, ends up happening despite those efforts is a crystal-induced nephropathy, and uh, that renal damage then goes on to reduce methotrexate clearance. So as was previously mentioned, um, you kind of enter a, a cycle of further deposition of crystals resulting in worsening renal function and therefore worsening methotrexate toxicity. And before 2012, there were really no other approved pharmaceutical therapies um, with patients who had AKI from toxic methotrexate concentrations. Uh, there was, you know, some possibilities include uh, dialysis type of techniques or plasma exchange. Um, but glucarpidase, previously known as carboxypeptidase G2, is a carboxypeptidase G enzyme isolated from pseudomonas uh, that actually hydrolyzes the terminal glutamate residue from methotrexate. So essentially you're inactivating methotrexate when there's too much of it around as the patient begins to get toxic. And uh, the, the uh, hydrolysis of methotrexate and its active metabolite, uh, 7-hydroxymethotrexate by glucarbidase, forms inactive metabolites that are then metabolized by the liver. And so you can then extrarenally excrete the, the metabolites. And it's been available since 93 <coughs> in the United States and Europe, essentially under compassionate use. So essentially you have permission to, to study this um, for compassionate use purposes. And uh, was approved in January 2012 for the treatment of toxic methotrexate plasma levels in patients with delayed renal clearance due to impaired renal function. And this study was a pooled analysis of efficacy data from four different multi-center, single-arm, compassionate-use clinical trials of glucarbidase. And all four studies were open-label trials that uh, enrolled consenting patients who had impaired methotrexate clearance due to AKI induced by methotrexate. And uh, to uh, avoid some known interactions between leucovorin and glucarbidase, uh, patients were continued on leucovorin, but it was restricted to a time frame two to four hours before and after glucarbidase. So there was an attempt to try to really look at what glucarbidase was doing here. And patients were treated with IV hydration and bicarb and hemodialysis as needed. So standard therapies that we have available to date were still used. And uh, they know that DAMPA and OHGMPA, the byproducts of the catabolic action of glucarbidase, uh, on methotrexate uh, cross-react uh, with the commercial assays that are typically used to, to look at methotrexate uh, concentrations. So to assess efficacy in, in these patients, they also in a, a certain portion of the patients looked at high-performance liquid chromatography as well, predicting that perhaps there would be interference with the assay they normally use to look at methotrexate concentrations. And what they did was look at for glucarbidase administration after administration at 15 minutes, one hour, and two to four hours. And there's a, a lot of other detail in this study, but I'll try to stick to the main points here. Um, uh, in their results um, section, they note that most patients were receiving treatment for various cancers, as we had mentioned before, so osteosarcoma, ALL, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, and that they received the protocol dose of glucarbidase 50 units per kilo and it's administered IV over five minutes. Of the total 476 patients with confirmed glucarbidase dosing, 169 of them had at least one post-glucarbidase methotrexate concentration measured by the liquid chromatography approach. 
and they were therefore included in the efficacy analysis because we were able to assess real non-interfered uh, with methotrexate concentrations. So uh, of 169 evaluable patients, 118 or about 70% of them received a single dose of blue carbidase, 26% or so received a second dose, and then 3.6% received a third dose of the blue carbidase. And the, the, to look at their endpoints, methotrexate reduction uh, was immediate in most patients. So 136 patients, or 87% of 156 patients um, uh, experiencing a 95% or higher reduction in serum methotrexate concentration from pre-glucarbidase uh, to post uh, 15 minutes post glucarbidase therapy. And the median methotrexate concentration at each of those post glucarbidase endpoints um, was lower uh, than 0.54 uh, micromoles per liter. So, in other words, bigger picture, the, the median reductions <clears throat> from pre to post glucarbidase was 97% or higher. RSCIRs, they're calling it rapid and sustained clinically important reduction in methotrexate. <laughs> so they'll use that term kind of throughout the rest of the results. <coughs> that was achieved uh, by 59% of, of the patients who had a pre-glucarbidase methotrexate level higher than one micromole per liter. And uh, patients who had a pre-glucarbidase methotrexate concentration of 50 micromoles per liter or higher were less likely to achieve that rapid and sustained clinically significant reduction in methotrexate. A total of 98% of the patients uh, with pre-glucarbidase methotrexate concentrations of 50 micromoles per liter or higher, per liter or higher, and 83% of patients who had the lower uh, methotrexate concentrations had 95% uh, reductions. So a further reduction uh, was found in eight patients who received a second dose of glucarbidase at 48 hours or later after that first dose. Um, and the extent of that further reduction varied very broadly from 8% to 97%, so a bit varied there. They then looked at recovery of renal function, which is what we're really interested in here. Um, in 436 patients with available pre-methotrexate and pre-glucarbidase serum creatinines, there was a 3.5-fold increase in mean creatinines from before methotrexate treatment to their, the post-methotrexate treatment, so post-methotrexate but pre-glucarbidase. And mean serum creatinine continued to rise in these patients um, over several days and then subsequently began to, to decrease. So 410 evaluable patients who developed elevated creatinine levels following the high-dose methotrexate that remained um, at, at grade two renal failure or higher pre-glucarbidase 63.9% uh, recovered uh, with a median time to recover, recovery of 12.5 days. And that's just in the patients where they could really kind of monitor the serum creatinine and at those pre-methotrexate levels. In patients younger than 18 years, um, essentially uh, median time to recovery uh, was eight days. And um, in younger than 12 years, Sorry, patients 12 to 18 years, it was 12 days. So basically, the younger you were, the better you did, which, which makes some sense there. Um, there were a couple of adverse events and paresthesias in a couple percent of patients uh, described in various ways and some flushing described in various ways in about a couple of percent, percent of patients. Really nothing particularly concerning, to my interpretation at least. Um, so in their discussion sec section, they, they essentially state that in these studies, regardless of design and sort of some varying inclusion-exclusion criteria, which we won't go into the details of, the administration of glucarbidase consistently caused a rapid and sustained reduction in methotrexate concentrations, 97% or higher uh, reduction in those concentrations with each uh, post-glucarbidase assessment at those post-treatment uh, time periods. And they regard that as a clinically important uh, reduction in about 59% of patients. And that, that that rapid and sustained clinically significant reduction occurred um, 
in more than half of all the treated uh, patients, mostly in patients with methotrexate concentrations lower than 50. So kind of better in the, the not as toxic levels. Um, they then go on to just describe that glucarpidase hydrolyzes methotrexate in the vascular space. So if you have intracellular methotrexate, which we'll have, that will not be hydrolyzed. Um, and that, that you then can release the intracellular methotrexate into the vascular space, and so you have rebound um, toxicity. And so um, obviously that uh, is a concern. And that kind of underscores the need to continue to treat with leucovorin rescue therapy, even if you're using glucarpidase. It's essentially considered the intracellular rescue portion of the treatment. And they then conclude by saying that basically the currently available methods are suboptimal for treatment and that there's a need for really effective treatment that rapidly decreases methotrexate concentrations in patients who are in this situation, essentially with <coughs> methotrexate toxicity leading to renal failure, and that they feel that glucarpidase meets this need and should be considered in use. Yeah, so this is a, you know, a new drug that... Um... You know, this is probably one of the better pooled studies describing how it works. You know, within minutes, I mean, it cleaves methotrexate into DAMPA and glutamate, both non-toxic components. It also, unfortunately, cleaves leucovorin. So if you happen to be given leucovorin at the same time, it makes that leucovorin not toxic, but just generally not available. So you need to wait a few hours after you give the glucarpidase and then restart the leucovorin, because kind of like lithium, the drug kind of leaks back out of the intercellular space back into the vascular space where it can continue to cause some toxicity, even though the glucarpidase has pretty much done its, du uh, its duty. So you need to continue the leucovorin probably for as long as 48 hours afterwards, depending on the scenario. And the only other thing I think from the paper is worth noting is that many of these assays that most hospitals, community hospitals, may use to pick up methotrexate levels don't work in the face of having given leucovorin. So it's kind of like the DIG story, where you give DIG a bind and top of DIG, and you can't really measure DIG. Um, you have to use the HPLC, more sophisticated lab method that's generally not um, available to many places, perhaps just in cancer therapy centers where they're using that level. So if anything, it's going to overestimate how much methotrexate is still laying around, and you're going to be stuck having to keep giving leucovorin for more days until you can get an accurate level from the definitive lab. So that makes it tricky. But the good news is, I think, it seems to cleave most of the methotrexate pretty quickly, pretty effectively, 95% reduction. On the downside is it's exorbitantly expensive, like most new drugs are. Um, you know, we looked at prices in this a little while ago. It was like 20000 for a dose kind of thing. So this kind of boils down to, like we've had the same discussion with many other antidotes, is, well, should we use our old methods of leucovorin and dialysis versus glucarpidase? Um, kind of it's almost the same debate that came out with bimepazole for dialysis versus mepazole only treatment or several other things we've come up with. So I found one paper that tries to address it as best as possible. So John, tell us about that one. Yeah, so this is a, a very nicely written um, kind of summary uh, short article uh, published in the seminars in dialysis uh, in May and June of 2014 out of uh, the Yale School of Medicine entitled, What is the Best Therapy for toxic, uh, Toxicity in the Setting of Methotrexate? associated acute kidney injury, high flux hemodialysis, or carboxypeptidase G2. Uh, and the authors start, uh, as we've kind of done, uh, with a, a nice summary of how methotrexate works um, and its uh, dose-dependent associated nephrotoxicity, generally seen with uh, the high-dose methotrexate that's used in these aggressive malignancies uh, like osteosarcoma, breast cancer, ALL. Uh, and the mechanism they discuss, um, as we've mentioned already before, about crystal deposition uh, in the renal tubules, um, and this obviously being exacerbated by volume depletion and, um, uh, and the acidity of, of urine. And um, they go on to talk about the standard 
kind of prevention methods uh, that we've also already mentioned about volume expansion, urinary alkalization, um, and leucovorin. Um, and I think most importantly, uh, kind of highlight the fact that even with these prevention methods, uh, that up to about 12% of patients developed uh, methotrexate-induced kidney injury uh, with high-dose methotrexate. So even though when we're, when we're trying our best, um, you know, about uh, 1 in 10 uh, of our patients are going to uh, develop uh, kidney injury, which is not insignificant. So uh, their, their proposition and in, in discussion in these papers uh, was talking about the uh, two kind of treatment approaches, uh, the uh, use of high-flux hemodialysis uh, for toxic methotrexate levels, or the administration of this uh, kind of new novel uh, um, agent, uh, the carboxypeptidase G2 uh, glucarpidase. So, and they mentioned, you know, right at the back, the fact that there aren't any randomized trials uh, comparing one to the other. Uh, their main uh, approach in, in analysis is to kind of highlight the benefits and the, the, um, the, the factors um, in, in each of these uh, methods. So they talk about um, high-flux hemodialysis uh, for methotrexate, methotrexate being a small molecule uh, that's, as we mentioned, 50% protein bound and has a large volume distribution, <coughs> kind of making it a, a, a moderately acceptable but not ideal candidate for removal in hemodialysis. And they highlight a couple of case reports um, of uh, one series of six patients that had methotrexate toxicity. Um, and acute kidney injury secondary to that toxicity. And uh, don't really mention how they came to um, uh, the number, but they calculated the mean uh, methotrexate clearance with high-flux uh, hemodialysis at 92 uh, milliliters per minute, um, plus or minus 10 milliliters. And noting that the most effective clearance of methotrexate was with longer treatment times up to six hours um, and with higher flow rates. They also mentioned the fact that, that methotrexate levels rebound uh, you know, post-dialysis, which you know, isn't necessarily unsurprising, the fact that we're drawing it out of the serum and there's a large volume of distribution that's still out there intracellularly and can, uh, can mobilize uh, past dialysis and that uh, you know, a single episode um, or session of dialysis might not be su uh, sufficient and may require repeated uh, sessions. Uh, highlighting also as well the uh, potential complications from hemodialysis, including infections and bleeding, um, obviously not insignificant risks with the population that um, is having methotrexate um, uh, as, a, as, a, um, as a medication. Um, in, in, in contrast, uh, this new agent that, um, that we've just discussed, glu, uh, glucarpidase, is this bacterial-derived recombinant enzyme uh, that hydrolyzes methotrexate into DAMPA and glutamate. Um, it, it shows some promise, and they talk about um, two kind of main um, uh, pieces of evidence for, for its promise um, as an intervention. Uh, the first being a series of 43 patients um, undergoing treatment with methotrexate who received the kind of standard preventative care that we've mentioned before uh, with IV fluids, bicarbonate, and leucovorin, uh, but were also dosed with uh, glucarpidase according to a standard methotrexate uh, nomogram that they developed. Uh, and in the single arm study of 24 uh, samples, they found that 97% of methotrexate was removed from the serum with a median of 15 minutes of its, uh, within its administration and a reduction in serum levels of 23%. Uh, and despite, excuse me, um, this, this quite dramatic uh, decrease in the levels of methotrexate, they found that 23% of the patients died, demonstrating that even though um, this agent was sufficient in decreasing uh, the levels of methotrexate, it might not be um, sufficient to prevent mortality. Uh, the second uh, piece of evidence in support of uh, glucarpidase that they mentioned is uh, this, this study that uh, Jillian just uh, eloquently described, uh, 
476 patients in a, a single arm compassionate use study. Um, and the main, uh, two main pieces of evidence they cite for uh, its efficacy, uh, the first being that in this, uh, the patients that had um, a toxic level of methotrexate, uh, they found that um, a drastic reduction was achieved in 59% of patients who received one or two drug doses. And although mortality wasn't studied uh, in this study, uh, the effect on kidney function was notable. The second piece of evidence that they um, support, uh, that they cite in support of this medication, that uh, 410 patients who had a grade two or higher kidney toxicity, 63.9% recovered in, uh, to less than a grade one toxicity by day 15. Of course, the, the downsides of this new medication, as we've already alluded to, it's uh, not routinely stocked in pharmacies. It can cost as much as $20,000 per 1,000-unit vial. Um, and kind of on balance, they, don't, uh, they mention that uh, this drug shows promise, that it's non-invasive, uh, doesn't, cover, uh, doesn't uh, carry along the, the side effects that or possible complications that hemodialysis does with bleeding and impossible infection um, and should be considered for use in uh, patients with methotrexate toxicity. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a tough call. There's a lot of analogies to like lithium, you know, should we dialyze or not? There's this rebound effect that happens as a drug comes out of the intracellular compartment. And then we have this drug that'll just cleave the toxin in the vascular space and be done with it, but it's really expensive. As opposed to lithium patients, I mean, these patients, like you mentioned, are sicker. They've got pancytopenia, they're at risk for infections, they're at risk for line sepsis. And so dialysis is not something we just kind of dialyze them one day or two days and pull out the line and all is good, low risk of toxicity. So I think as we're seeing, it looks like the risk-benefit equation kind of tilts towards giving intravenous glucarpidase in most of these cases. Um, you know, I guess the only case where maybe hemodialysis may went out is the patient who takes someone else's methotrexate who's otherwise healthy but shows up with some renal dysfunction, and maybe hemodialysis is maybe okay in those folks because they're started out more healthy, perhaps. Um, and the cost of doing hemodialysis once in a day in the ICU is a whole lot less than $20,000, no matter where you end up having, having that done. Um, the other thing, although they don't give the timeline for how quickly your creatinine recovers with the carbidase patients and adults, it took about two weeks up to 12 days to recover renal function. So these people are going to be in the hospital for a longer period of time watching. They get to go carbidase, they burn their $20,000, and now they got like a couple of weeks in the hospital keeping an eye on their labs and their renal function, as opposed to maybe the hemodialysis patients where you do it, it's done, and you know hopefully they're maybe out in a few days. So more to come on that. Is glucarpidase readily available at most pharmacies? No, it's not. I think we had a case not too long ago, and I think we had it, and maybe the other cancer hospitals had it. And I don't think outside of places that are doing Cancer Institute kind of work that anyone's <clears throat> going to stock it. Um, but it's pretty expensive. And just to have that one emergency dose around um, is you know, probably critical. Um, probably the most critical place to have that emergency dose around is where you're giving intrathecal methotrexate, as you're about to tell us all about the <laughs> scary phenomenon that that occurs with. Yeah, so um, I'm going to talk about intrathecal methotrexate neurotoxicity, uh, clinical correlates and anecdotal treatment. This is published in 2005 um, by Finkelstein et al. Um, the, as a little background, um, like we've talked about, methotrexate is often given orally or IV, um, but in a couple situations, we worry a little bit more about increased neurotoxicity, specifically the high-dose intravenous dosing, um, as well as intrathecal dosing. And intrathecal dosing is used for the um, prophylactic treatment of CNS sanctuary site um, in leukemia lymphoma, so this is usually in various cancers. Um, the usual intrathecal dosage administration is 12 to 15 milligrams, and that's usually repeated at three weeks intervals. There have been accidental overdoses, um, usually um, a mistaken order or some kind of um, iatrogenic misdosing. 
Um, and in the literature, there's there it, it looks like that intrathecal doses of less than 100 milligrams are generally pretty, um, have mild toxicity. Between 100 and 500, you have a little bit more toxicity, and then above 500 milligrams, you get, um, that's where we really see high, high mortality and morbidity. Um, so in these cases, it's important to recognize right away and treat right away um, because you, the, you, you have better outcomes the earlier you treat. Um, the toxic effects of metho uh, the methotrexate neurotoxicity um, are also compounded by um, uh, cranial radiation. So people who have had uh, radiation also um, might put them at higher risk for neurotoxicity. Um, the effect of methotrexate on the nervous system is immediate, um, so that's another reason why it's important to do prompt intervention. So this paper looked um, specifically at published cases of um, intrathecal overdoses of greater than 100 milligrams um, that have been reported. So they reviewed papers from 1966 to 2003, and again, they only included those got, that got more than 100 milligrams, which is eight times the therapeutic dose. Um, table 1 summarizes um, the nine patients that they found. Um, two of them were asymptomatic. Um, two of them had convulsions or seizures. One patient had intense pain or hypertonia. And then uh, four had, uh, three had acute toxic encephalopathy. Um, and then the other one had low back pain and seizures. Most of these people were treated with um, IV leucovorin um, and uh, some other things that we'll talk about too, including steroids and CSF exchange. Um, so from, a, from the neurotoxicity standpoint, um, again, we've talked about the, the target of methotrexate as the dihydrofolate reductase inhibition, but it also does some other things. Um, specifically, it interferes with transmethylation reactions, which are really important for synthesis of proteins and lipids and myelin. Um, and presumably, we think that this probably leads to some demyelination um, in the nervous system. The neurotoxicity is definitely um, route and dose dependent. Um, and because when we give methotrexate orally, you generally don't really see um, a lot of neurotoxicity. Like I said, you're, the people at high risk for neurotoxicity are either getting really high doses of IV methotrexate or intrathecal methotrexate and delivering it right to the, to the CSF. Um, the oral form um, and even, or the IV form is actually water soluble. So at normal doses, not the high doses, but at normal doses, it doesn't uh, readily penetrate the, the blood CSF barrier. So you're a little bit protected in those situations. Um, the other risk factor is if you have frequent IV administration, you can accumulate your doses and you can develop high intrathecal um, concentrations then. Um, looking at the mechanism of why uh, the neurotoxicity occurs, there's probably direct toxic effects on the neurons and also um, through some biochemical pathways. There's a uh, chart that goes over the neurotoxic effects that looks it's very complicated there's a lot of things involved um, so it's probably both directly toxic to the neurons as well as having biochemical interactions they talk about a couple of case reports um, one patient had focal tissue necrosis when the tip of the um, interventricular catheter um, was misplaced and they got uh, methotrexate um, and with focal tissue necrosis there was another case of a, a child who was um, moved during um, intrathecal injection and got methotrexate directly on the spinal cord and developed um, irreversible uh, damage. Um, they looked at a couple, they talked about a couple studies that um, looked at the CSF levels of various things like methionine, S-adenosyl, homocysteine, and homocysteine. And these are increased, which can often be seen in cases of endothelial cell injury and cerebrovascular um, infarcts. So this might also have some explanation as to why we see focal neurologic defects and seizures um, in, in methotrexate neurotoxicity. It may also be related um, to vascular um, effects as well. Um, and then finally, it also, the transmethylation reaction inhibition probably also affects catecholamine synthesis as well, um, and this might also play into methotrexate-induced seizures. Um, clinically, um, what we see is this um, acute leukoencephalopathy. Um, most commonly, it, it occurs early on within 24 to 48 hours. Generally, you'll see uh, generalized seizures, stupor, coma. 
Um, but you can get a subacute um, presentation days or weeks after administration. And this is most often characterized with stroke-like episodes, so you can have focal CNS deficits, hemiparesis, and dysphagia. Um, and these, uh, these are also usually um, accompanied by altered mental uh, status. Um, the subacute encephalopathy generally occurs um, a few days after the second weekly IV dose, um, and this often will actually resolve within 40 to 72 hours um, without any recurrence. Um, they give the case of a 21-year-old male with um, T-cell ALL um, who got 12 milligrams of intrathecal methotrexate at intervals up to day 102. So he was getting re repeated doses. 48 hours after his last methotrexate dose on day 104, he had massive cerebral edema, herniation, and brain death. So this is a case of progressive leukoencephalopathy um, from his cumulative doses of methotrexate. Um, the volume, they talk a little bit about the volume of methotrexate that's injected and how that relates. There, it used to be thought that um, you had to give a certain amount of volume, about 135 mils, to actually reach um, the basal cisterns, um, but it sounds like this isn't really, um, this, this number isn't really used anymore. You can get some extradural and subdural leakage of drug, um, so it's really difficult to really estimate how much uh, methotrexate is actually retained in the, in the um, uh, CSF. Um, and then you can also get a delayed chronic leukoencephalopathy. Um, this is um, more consistent with like a dementia type picture, progressive personality changes. Um, you can see some focal neurologic or deficits and also some seizures. This, unlike the subacute um, presentation, is generally irreversible. And the people at greatest risk for this um, delayed irreversible presentation um, are getting high, v, high dose IV methotrexate, intrathecal, or like I said, they have a history of cranial radiation, which puts them at higher risk. You can see some white matter changes in MRI before you actually see pathological changes like demyelination. So oftentimes their EEG will be the first time that's the first thing that's abnormal. Um, and then you can see some periventricular white matter changes that are exposed to methotrexate. Um, just seems that the white matter is more sensitive to methotrexate, whether that's either um, administered intrathecally or through interventricular manner. As far as treatment, um, there's really a few, only a few reports really have limited data. Um, the, the authors here um, propose CSF exchange and IV leucovorin is the, really the base um, mainstay of treatment. CSF exchange essentially removes the methotrexate following massive overdose. Um, and the main thing that we, we do is um, IV leucovorin, um, and it's important to do this um, early, um, and then usually followed by a regular uh, leucovorin protocol as well. Um, like we talked about a little bit, leucovorin is folinic acid. Um, it's a tetrahydrofolate uh, derivative um, that kind of bypasses the inhibition. Um, it actually enters normal cells preferentially over tumor cells um, just because of the transport mechanisms, which is, which is handy. Um, they talk a little bit about the controversy regarding intrathecal administration of leucovorin, and this is really interesting. Um, so historically, we're taught not to ever give leucovorin intrathecally. Um, there's some, some side effects. It can lower seizure threshold, has epileptogenic potential. And then um, the case that's often cited is a case of a um, child who got a very mild overdose of intrathecal methotrexate of 20 milligrams. And remember, I said the normal dose was 10, 12 to 15. So it really wasn't a huge overdose of methotrexate and probably would have been just fine from the methotrexate standpoint. Unfortunately, the child got um, multiple doses of intrathecal um, uh, leucovorin and actually had... Um, pretty uh, significant effects and actually ended up dying and it was attributed to the intrathecal leucovorin, not the methotrexate overdose. So since this, that case was published, um, we really have been considered not giving intrathecal uh, leucovorin. But the, the authors of this paper um, had a case where they did, they had a case where they gave two milligrams of leucovorin intrathecally um, and they talked about a second case that was also reported. 
and it seems that they did they did okay. So the authors here are suggesting that maybe we just need to do more research. Maybe you know, intrathecal leucovorin isn't quite as bad as we think, but we definitely need more animal studies and more um, research before we make it standard of care for sure. And then they just finally they just briefly talk about um, using dexamethasone, um, and this is especially in those cases of people who develop chemical arachnoiditis. Um, who have headache, back pain, nuchal rigidity. Um, interestingly, the steroids actually enhance CSF flow through the intrathecal catheter, so you can actually increase the amount of CSF you're exchanging. And then they recommend glucarpidase as well in these situations. That's it. Yeah, so not a lot of cases, at least published. There may be other cases that are not published that people are aware of. And it's one of those things, really, uh, like you're flying the plane and the engines go out and you have to know exactly what to do. And the first thing is to aspirate back the methyltrexate that you gave too much of, call your neurosurgeon to perhaps do the CSF exchange lavage through the Omaya Reservoir, or sometimes they put a catheter in a lumbar area and they lavage completely through from the reservoir down to the lumbar area and drain it. And, of course, not to use leucovorin despite what they say inter- Equally, but you can use it intravenously, and then um, really the thing that's going to make the big difference is uh, uh, intrathecal glucarpidase. Uh, so I'll finish up with a case <coughs> where it was successfully used, and a little bit of other tidbits from the literature on this. This is from a clinical lymphoma myeloma and leukemia article in April of 2013. Successful use of intrathecal carboxypeptidase, G2, for intrathecal methyltrexate overdose, a case study in review of the literature. Um, again, the introduction information we've talked about before, um, that um, G, uh, this was already approved at the time that this article was written by the FDA just for IV use for high doses of methotrexate in the face of renal toxicity. Um, and this was a 66-year-old woman who had central nervous system lymphoma and accidentally got 10 times the intended dose of intrathecal methotrexate, phenomenon we have seen before. She was scheduled to receive 15 milligrams in her Omaya reservoir, and she ended up with 150. So above that 100, that potentially could have caused problems, not gigantically above it. Uh, the, she was immediately called back to the clinic. It was like she had left and went home, and then they tapped her Omaya reservoir and got 15 cc's of yellow CSF out of the reservoir, they gave her IV dextamethasone to prevent arachnoiditis, which is probably an important part of the regimen. She got IV leucovorin, again, to kind of prevent some of the other effects that's known. And she quickly became more and more somnolent. Um, Eleven hours afterwards, she was transferred to the facility where these authors work, which uh, is Chapel Hill, North, North Carolina. And in the emergency department, she had headache, nausea, vomiting, lightheadedness, and a blank stare. After a few minutes, she developed myoclonic muscle contractions in her arms, difficulty with concentration, short-term memory loss, but no other focal findings. And then they got an independent new drug waiver to use the FDA-available carpidase intrathecally, which mm -hmm. was a route that was not approved of previously, but highlighted in the case reports that we just talked about. Additionally, she continued to get dexamethasone, four milligrams every six hours, leucovorin every three hours. And after this, and again, the overdose wasn't gigantic, but still high enough. Her CSF and serum methyltrexate levels were monitored, and they dropped very quickly within 10 minutes with the uh, dosing of glucarpidase. Uh, the CSF methyltrexate level was 660 on admission, dropped to 184, um, and then dropped more substantially over the next 72 hours. She was back to baseline, neurologic intact. So um, it's a little bit of a delayed recognition, but everything was done correctly, and, and in fact, probably should be the model for how we treat these when they are recognized. Um, as far as the discussion, they talk about that same 100, less than 100 milligrams probably don't result in severe toxicity. Although it definitely makes people nervous, probably not a candidate for glucarpidase, at least what they know. Doses above that have been associated with the whole spectrum of problems, seizure, coma, death, cardiac arrest. Um, and doses above 500 are the ones that are truly crisis emergencies that you need to react to very quickly. 
um, like they did in this patient. Um, you can get this demyelination, necrotizing leukoencephalopathy as well. So they recommend, as, as I say, immediate lumbar puncture to remove the CSF. Done immediately, you may have to call a neurosurgeon for that, for what they call CSF lavage. They may install an emergency vitriculostomy to kind of perfuse the CSF to kind of wash it through. Uh, obviously, you need to be in a center that has both neurosurgeons and some experience with this approach. And timing, they say, is everything. So the sooner, the better. Um, they talk about IT leukovorin not being approved. Parodic labeling warrants against it quite strongly. This is the known ability of leukovorin, really, and it's really one case that we talked about to cause seizures um, and its toxicity in an 11-year-old boy who received it. Um, we just talked about led to his brain brain death as well. Um, so carboxypeptidase has been approved and has, only for IV, but it's been used multiple times for this. It, like we said, cleaves methotrexate to glutamic acid and DAMPA. Normally, DAMPA only accounts for about five percent of what's excreted, but it converts all of it to DAMPA or ninety-five percent of it to DAMPA, and this seems to be non-toxic. So. Um, again, I don't think there's any other points in the discussion we haven't brought up already other than um, the facts about you have to use a HPLC to measure methotrexate levels, not the amino assays once again. And uh, they kind of reiterate many of the same cases that we just talked about that had complete recovery after getting um, CSF carpidase. So again, I think as an antidote, this it may be clearly important for intrathecal administration. It's the thing that must be done on top of several other interventions, along with IV leucovorin, not intrathecal, but IV leucovorin, IV hydration, IV uh, dexamethasone to prevent arachnoiditis, but sooner the better. As far as the chronic toxicity or high-dose, extra-dose toxicity in the face of renal failure, glucarpidase seems to work, but is very expensive, and... I think we're going to have to weigh the risk-benefit of cost-benefit of when to use it and not use it, but I think in major cancer centers, it's probably going to be used once your creatinine is above 1.5, which isn't that dramatically elevated, but that's sort of the indication right now. The important thing is to remember when doing it that way is to hold the leucovorin for a few hours and then restart it two or three hours later, which is still need to pick up all of that extra methotrexate that's coming out of the cells and uh, sort of deactivate it. So it, uh, not so much deactivate it, but give the cells the uh, folic acid it needs instead of the one that's been inhibited before. So a less, not very used, frequently used or talked about toxin, but uh, uh, a couple of pointers there for treating it. Stuff you kind of have to need to know in the middle of the night when I call you one of these cases that are, is scary, very scary. And we've only had maybe one or two, I think, over the course of many years, but still can happen. I think safety things with uh, uh, unique ordering mechanisms in cancer centers have helped prevent a lot of these things. But as we stated, methotrexate is given for non-cancer indications and the unfortunate opportunity for errors to occur, 10-time dosing errors, especially in children, which seem to be more common, still exists for kids being treated with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and these other um, non-cancer indications for methotrexate. So any other thoughts or comments? wrap it up for the journal club then for uh, uh, April and uh, we'll get this all online so everyone else can hear about it and we'll see you next time.